short portion of God's Word that we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, I hope that by the time we've finished, uh, you'll never quite read this passage in the same way again. As is so often the case with the Bible, uh, it's not particularly apparent when you first read it, but there are some quite astounding things to discover in these verses once we begin to just dig a little deeper and some very helpful and practical instruction for our Christian living as well. Jesus and his disciples have arrived back in Capernaum, which you may remember is, by standards in those days, a fairly sizable and important town on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's here that some of the disciples, who are fishermen by trade, have their family homes, Simon and Andrew, uh, James and John, it was here that Matthew worked as a tax collector before Jesus called him to be a disciple. It was the town that for Jesus was home for several years whilst his, the first part of his earthly ministry was based mostly in the northern region of Galilee. And Jesus and his disciples have just had uh, quite a prolonged absence from Capernaum as they've been travelling all around the northern part of Israel, but they've now returned back home again. Now, it's only Matthew who records this event, and perhaps this former tax collector has an understandable interest in this particular uh, exchange that takes place here. And we're going to consider uh, this little event in three sections and under three headings. And here's the first, and it won't make sense to begin with, but hopefully by the end it will. The first heading is this, the ransom paid by the ransom. What does that mean? Well, let's think about this. Well, these men come up and ask Peter this question. Now, it's hard to know for certain whether these men who put this question to Peter were simply at the time doing the rounds and asked Peter about Jesus paying this tax simply as a matter of routine, or was there, as often there is when the Pharisees ask questions, uh, was there some other motive lying behind this question? Was it simply a genuine inquiry or were they actually fishing around to try and dig up some dirt? It's not completely clear, but it reads as though probably it is just a genuine inquiry. So we'll assume that it is and we'll just proceed from there. And the question is, uh, as we have it recorded in our New King James translation, does your teacher... Jesus not pay the temple tax. Well, what is this tax that these men were talking about? Well, depending upon which Bible translation you have, it's mentioned in various ways. Some say temple tax, as we have in the New King James. Some don't say temple tax. Some say the half shekel. Does he pay the half shekel? Others, the question is, does he pay the double drachma tax? Or some say, does he pay the two drachma 
tax. Uh, the NIV kind of covers all bases by saying, uh, does he pay the two drachma temple tax? Whilst if you read the, uh, the old King James Version, it simply calls it the tribute. So which is it? Well, actually, they're all correct in their own way. This tax that's being spoken of here is a tax that was introduced by God in the law given to Moses. And the tax was to fund the ongoing week-by-week -week working of the temple, or the tabernacle, of course, as it was in the first early years of Israel's history. And you can read about it in Exodus chapter 30. We'll read some of the verses shortly. The Old Testament worship of God required all manner of offerings and sacrifices to be administered continually. And in order to do this, God instructed Moses to set aside all of the men from the tribe of Levi, descendants of Aaron, the, the brother of Moses. And those men would serve as Israel's priests in the tabernacle and later in the temple. It was to be their full-time occupation that they would take up from the age of 30. And so to provide for them and their families and all that was necessary in the daily functioning of the temple, all the men in Israel over the age of 19 were required to pay this annual tax. And the amount set by God in Exodus chapter 30 was half a shekel. Now, in New Testament days, half a shekel is the same as two drachmas. Hence why some call it the, uh, the half shekel, some call it the double drachma. Uh, you'll have heard of another coin in the Bible, the dinar or the denarius. The denarius was a Roman coin, roughly equivalent in value to a man's daily wage. The drachma is its Greek equivalent. And so this tax became known variously as the, the temple tax, uh, the half shekel tax, or the double drachma tax. The Greek word that's used by Matthew is literally double drachma. So it's equivalent to two days pay. And this tax was to be paid in addition to all of the other tithes and offerings that the Old Testament people of Israel were required to pay. Now there are several things which make this tax of particular interest in relation to Jesus. This tax funds the temple worship in Israel and much of that worship requires the offering of sacrifices. Why? Why is that so important? Why is that so significant? Why is the offering of sacrifice so central in Old Testament worship? For this reason, the proper worship of God demands that we acknowledge our sin. It demands it. And that in our sinfulness, we cannot draw near to God to worship him unless something is done about our sinfulness. And indeed, 
the wages of sin is death. Which is why death features so much in Old Testament worship. We deserve to die because of our sin. Because of our sin, we should die in the presence of God. But God has declared that he is willing to accept the blood of another in our place as our substitute. And so these animal sacrifices existed to make atonement for our sin. The temple was a place of immense bloodshed. It had to be. That's how God ordained it. And it's really interesting when you read the little section in Exodus chapter 30 as this tax is introduced. Listen for some of the words that we find used from verses 11 to 16 in Exodus chapter 30. When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, so you know who everyone is and how old they all are, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you, give, when you make an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Isn't that interesting? A fixed price is to be paid regardless of your wealth or position. A ransom to make atonement these are gospel words. This is gospel vocabulary. The price paid by Christ on the cross is the fixed penalty for all of our sins. No matter who you are, no matter what kind of life you've lived, there is only one price that can cover your sins. And that's the death of the Lord Jesus on the, on the cross. And here it is pictured in the Old Testament. A fixed price. This tax, which in Exodus is called a ransom. Does Jesus pay the ransom? Is the question being asked. The men don't realise it. 
the men don't understand it. But that's the question being asked. Does Jesus pay the ransom? If only they knew. If only they understood. When we get to the New Testament, we learn, particularly, of course, through the letter to the Hebrews, that all of that sacrificial worship in the Old Testament didn't in itself actually achieve anything at all. Which is a remarkable thing to learn. We discover that it was all symbolic. It was all vivid illustration. They were temporary types and shadows. It was all one huge signpost pointing forward to one single sacrifice that would accomplish everything that those hundreds of thousands of sacrifices could never achieve. Not one of those animal sacrifices actually secured the forgiveness of sins. They were a sign and they were a testimony of that better sacrifice which one day would forgive sins. Why did God accept those Old Testament sacrifices if they in themselves didn't actually achieve anything? It's because God, of course, knew that the thing that they symbolized, the thing that they signified, the thing that they foreshadowed, the sacrifice which all of those sacrifices anticipated would indeed take place. And it's in looking forward to the death of Christ as he paid the ransom for sins that God in the meantime is able to accept these Old Testament sacrifices. Sacrifices which now are no longer required because the genuine once-for-all sacrifice has indeed paid the price for sin. He died for our sins, the ransom paid, and he made atonement. The genuine has come. And so all of those temporary symbols are no longer needed. If only those men who talked to Peter that day could realise what it was they were actually asking. This temple tax, which funds sacrifice, this ransom, which every man must pay, this atonement, which every man needs, does Jesus pay it? Does Jesus pay the ransom? If only they knew, they would probably wish the ground could open up under their feet and swallow them if they understood what they'd actually just asked. The ransom has been paid in full for you. And here is Jesus in his earthly ministry the ransom, paying the ransom 
year by year. But do you see and understand who this Jesus is? Can you see and understand what it is that he's come to do? All of these things spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures are all speaking of Christ. They're all pointing to Christ. And here he is in all his wonderful glory. The ransom being paid by the ransom. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of God's salvation for sinners. There's a second lesson we learn in this passage. As we see Jesus foregoing his rights so not to offend. We see that Peter confirms in verse 25 that yes, Jesus does indeed pay this temple tax. And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said himself that he hasn't come into the world to abolish the law, he's come into the world to fulfil it. Uh, The Apostle Paul says that Jesus, like us, was born under the law. As a man, he will live his life according to and in obedience to the law of God. The one huge difference, of course, is that he will do it perfectly and without sin. And so he observes the Sabbath day. He attends synagogue. He would visit Jerusalem for their annual feasts and so forth. He lived under the law of God, but did so without sin. And living under the law of God includes paying the temple tax. But Jesus, we see there in the middle of verse 25, he anticipates being questioned about this by the disciples. Jesus, of course, is a man of infinite wisdom and knowledge and understanding and he knows our hearts and our thoughts through and through. Uh, He knows the words we're going to speak from our lips even before we've spoken them. And he anticipates the kinds of things that uh, are, are going through the minds of the disciples and so he explains an important principle to them, a principle that he's been observing in his life and a principle which as I'll mention in a moment and some of you will already Uh, be able to think this through for yourself as well. The Apostle Paul teaches remains is a relevant principle for us as the Lord's people today as well. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus explains that strictly speaking, he has no need to pay this tax. And the reason for that will become apparent in, in the little illustration that he gives. And and actually, because of what he's about to accomplish through his death and resurrection, neither will his disciples need to pay this tax. Because all of that form of worship is about to be abolished. All of that form of worship is about to be done away with. Believers won't need the temple anymore. And God is about to establish his new covenant through his son in his death and resurrection. But Jesus brings this little explanation and this little illustration. Uh, He he asks Peter this question, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? Uh, There's one thing that is certain in life, isn't there? 
Well, there are a few, as the saying goes, and one of them is paying taxes. Uh, whoever the king is, whoever the monarch is, whoever the dictator is, whoever the government is, they'll always be after your money. There are things that need to be funded at a national level. But Peter, do, do, do kings take tax from their own son? Well, no, of course they don't. Peter knows that. Kings don't tax their own sons. Kings don't tax their own family. Family members are exempt. It's only fairly recently that the late Queen Elizabeth began to pay tax on her income as people began to moan and complain about such things. That centuries-old principle still applied to her not that long ago in her reign. The monarch reigns over the country. The monarch taxes the country. The country does not tax the monarch. That's just how things have been in the world. Whether you like it or whether you don't, that's just how it was. The king doesn't tax his son because he's part of the royal household. Some believe Donald Trump thought the same applied to him, but that's another story. We won't go into that. Our own prime minister got himself into hot water, didn't he? When it emerged that his extremely rich wife has this non-domicile status, so she hasn't been paying tax here in our own country. People get rather fussy about these things, and we understand why. So it's, it's kind of quite a relevant thing, isn't it? Even for us, we understand this issue about paying tax. But Jesus says, actually, if I, if I really wanted to, to lay things down, I don't need to pay this tax. This tax is for the worship of God. Why should he, as God, pay tax for his own worship? He's the son of the king. He does have a point, but he does pay the tax. Why does he choose to pay the tax? Even though he knows he could legitimately refuse to. He chooses to pay the tax so as not to cause unnecessary offence. If he were to try and explain to these men who collect the temple tax all of these things about himself, they would never be able to understand or accept it. They'd probably accuse him of blasphemy, claiming to be God indeed. For, for Jesus not to pay the tax, it would become an unnecessary offence. It would become an unnecessary barrier that he's putting up in front of these men. It's not necessary for Jesus to pay this tax, but neither is it sinful for him to pay it. And in fact, it will be helpful to his ministry if he does pay it. So he pays it. And actually, this falls in line completely with the Apostle Paul's frequent argument when it comes to us and our liberties as Christian men and women. There are many things that the Apostle Paul knew that he was at liberty to do, just as is true for you. There were many things that the Apostle Paul realised he could choose not to do. 
just as is the case for you. But not all of those decisions he took would be helpful. So he exercises a wise and very often a selfless discretion. Sometimes he refrains from certain things. And sometimes he involves himself in certain things. And he does so for the good of others. And he does so so as not to cause offence. It was Paul who convinced Timothy to be circumcised for exactly the same reason. There was no need before God for Timothy to be circumcised. But Timothy, you will find it immensely helpful to your ministry to be accepted amongst the Jewish believers, if you are. So Timothy chose to. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, it's verses, uh, verses 23 and 24. Let no one seek his own, but each one seek the other's well-being. The attitude that's found in the world, self-serving, what I want, this me-first attitude of heart that is found in the world is not to be found in the Christian and it most certainly is not found in the Lord Jesus Christ. If he had anything of the self-serving, what I want attitude that's found in the world, he would never have gone to the cross for others. His is the ultimate selfless humility. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, quite famously or infamously, depending on your view, talks about using his liberty to be all things to all men. What he does not mean is that he can choose to live any which way he likes, completely ignoring what the word of God might say. That's not what he means. He means things like this. If he went into a Jewish home, of course he himself was a Jew, but understands now that so much of that Jewishness is actually worthless to him now. But if he went into a Jewish home, he felt at complete liberty as a Christian to follow all of their Jewish customs within their home. And he did not question the restricted menu that they would offer him as they followed all of the Old Testament dietary laws. He would just go along with it. He was as a Jew while he was with them because there was nothing that would be required of him that was sinful. There was nothing in any of those things which stood in contradiction to the gospel. So he would happily go along with it so that he wasn't offending them, so that they were ready to listen to him. But if he went into the home of a Gentile, none of that Jewish tradition would be found there. And in a Gentile home, Paul was comfortable to abandon all such Jewishness and sit down and eat whatever food was offered him. He was all things to all men. 
He'd preach in the synagogues. He'd preach in the market square. He'd even go and preach on Mars Hill in Athens in front of a pagan shrine and surrounded by many more. He'd even go and preach there. He was all things to all men. Don't cause unnecessary offence. Don't cause a barrier to the gospel. Do not seek your own because you're not your own anymore. Jesus was pilloried by the Pharisees and the scribes because he would sit down and share a meal with tax collectors and sinners. How could he defile himself like that? They asked. But Jesus knew it caused no such defilement. And the spiritual good of these poor men and women was a far greater concern to him than causing disdain amongst these self-righteous men who had no intention of listening to a word he was going to say. They just wanted to be rid of him. And so we see this principle in operation in so many ways again and again and again in God's word. Within the bounds of full obedience to God and his word, do whatever you need to not to cause unnecessary offence and to keep open a door for the gospel, but always in full obedience to God and his word. And we see in Jesus here, this is Christ-likeness also. Nevertheless, verse 27, lest we offend them, that is enough reason to pay the tax even though technically I don't need to. I'm not going to stand here and argue my rights. Just pay the tax. Don't cause unnecessary trouble. Humble yourself. It's a great and important Christian principle that we need to live by. And of course the other side to that coin is having that same heart and mind towards other Christians so that you don't become a stumbling block towards them. Not seeking your own, but seeking the good of others. Complete humility, nothing of self remains. It is all for Christ and it is all for others. And so we see that important lesson brought to us here through the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, lest we offend them. And then finally, and a little more briefly, this event, of course, concludes with God's miraculous provision. You might recall that we looked at this story uh, a few months ago as one of our children's talks. It's a most remarkable end to the story, and if you were reading it through for the very first time, wouldn't be at all what you were expecting as to how Jesus would actually come to pay this tax. If you're tempted to come to me and ask later on, why did Jesus use this amazing miracle to provide the money for the tax? Well, I'm afraid I'm struggling to give you an answer other than to state the obvious. Jesus has complete 
foreknowledge and sovereignty over all of his creation. It is his. Why should he not, as the creator, use his creation to provide for him the required money? And doesn't this serve to reinforce for Peter, a man who's going to play such an important role in the life of the early church, doesn't this help to cement for him? And doesn't it help to cement for us what Jesus has just said about himself in verse 25 regarding his own relationship to God the Father? Where Jesus is is making it clear that Jesus is the son of the king of heaven. Now Peter, of course, was much more accustomed to fishing with nets. When we read of them doing their fishing from their boats on the Sea of Galilee, there are a number of stories, aren't there, where we have an account of them fishing, and it's always with nets. They were commercial fishermen. They wanted to catch as many fish as they could on every fishing trip. And the way to catch the most fish is to try and catch them in a net. Haul in a huge net of fish, Peter. And maybe, just maybe, one of them might even have a coin in its mouth. No, no, no. Peter, on this occasion... Get a line and a hook, cast it into the lake. The very first fish that bites, don't know how it did with a a coin in its mouth, but it did. The very first fish that bites, haul it out, it will have a coin in its mouth. And it is So, David Blaine, eat your heart out. And this coin in the Greek is a stator. And that was a Roman coin. And that was a coin worth a whole shekel. That was a coin worth four drachmas. The temple tax is only two drachmas, half a shekel. So Peter now has double the temple tax required. Peter now has enough for him and for Jesus, just as Jesus said. Exactly the right amount for the two of them. Now, the Bible gives no promise that you or I can expect such a miraculous provision for every need that we might have. But surely, surely you must be convinced that you can put all your trust in this Jesus, the one who rules even the winds and the waves, the one by whom all things were made, the one by whom all things hold together, the one who is able to make a fish pick up a specific coin and hold it in its mouth, the one who so ordered events in the past that someone lost that coin in that water. Imagine if the person who'd lost the coin saw that happen. How can this Jesus not be any other than the eternal Son of God? 
How can he not be anything other than that? When events like this, witnessed events like this take place. Reflecting on this story, one of the early church fathers, Jerome, said this, I don't know which to admire the most here, our Lord's foreknowledge or simply his greatness. I think that probably sums it all up, really. I suppose that's exactly the response that Christ desired to stir up in Peter. Surely this is the response that the Lord wishes to stir up in us in having Matthew record this event for us in his gospel. As we progress through the gospel, as with the other three gospels, the person of the Lord Jesus just gets more and more wonderful. I hope he is to you. He should be. What assurance you may have, dear Christian friend, in this one in whom you put all your trust. Can you point me to another who is more trustworthy? Can you point me to another in whom I can have more confidence, more hope, more assurance than this Lord Jesus, who is the sovereign God and Saviour and Ransom and Redeemer of men? How can we not just be in awe of our God and Saviour? How can we not just want to love him and serve him? How can we not put all our trust in him? And if you never have before, will you not do that today?